continue in this conversation today, and uh, the kind of the core premise that we've put out there so far, and we talked about this each week, is that we need to cross racial and ethnic boundaries in order to understand and live out the gospel. We need to cross racial and ethnic boundaries in order to understand and live out the gospel. We're, we're suggesting that this is not an option, but actually a necessary part of what it means to be a gospel person. This is a necessary part of what it means to be a gospel person. And we've given these four practices. It's on the little card with the invitation from Baba on the back. And so, Angela, you can put those four practices up there. And uh, these are not designed for us to say, oh, these are the simple things we can do, and then we'll all be perfectly racially reconciled. Absolutely not. It's a starting place. And so what we've been doing is trying to say, often we have these conversations, and then we wonder what we can do. And so we want to say, here's some small things that we can do to begin to engage in deeper cross-cultural relationships. And so we've talked about praying for reconciliation and praying against racism. We've talked about eating with people who are different than us and how a meal can really bring us together. We've talked, like we did last week, about listening to people who have different perspectives than us, and we actually got to listen to people who are different than many of us in the room. And then finally today, we're talking about worshiping with people from different ethnic backgrounds. And we see these four practices in this story in Acts 10 that we've been looking at each week. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 10. And I want to just review the story. I won't read every part of it, but just where we can see these four things happening throughout the story. I would say that worship with people of various ethnic backgrounds, it gives us a glimpse of something that, in my opinion, we all long for somewhere deep inside of us. I think that God put inside of us a longing for God's future final restoration, and a part of that is people of all tongues and tribes and nations coming together and worshiping God. And I think that God put just a desire for that somewhere inside of us, and then we have this enemy that's trying to keep us from that at times. And when we have those opportunities, it gives us a glimpse of what God is going to do someday. So if you haven't been with us in this conversation, my final disclaimer is this is a very complex conversation. And there is no way that any one person is going to say something that everybody else in the room completely agrees with. So that's okay. Feel free to come talk with me or Michael or anybody who's been talking about this so far. Uh, A multi-ethnic church leader named Mark Demaz, he says this, and I always hold this in my mind. In a multi-ethnic ministry setting, there's a 100% chance that you will be offended by or offend someone. (laughs) In a multi-ethnic ministry setting, there's a 100% chance that you'll be offended or you'll offend somebody else. Uh, So let's review this story together in Acts 10 as we look at where these practices are. And I'm just going to start right at the beginning of the chapter. So this is how the story starts. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He, He asked. Whenever an angel shows up, people get really freaked out. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Uh, So let me fill in a little bit of the story that happens after that. But notice that God is showing up 
to a man that is already a man after God's own heart. Did you hear that in there? The angel says to him, God sees you because you're a God-fearer, and you and your family have already been serving and financially supporting the poor, and, and he's a leader in this community. And as he's sending these men over from Caesarea to Joppa, the next day, uh, Peter is up on the roof of a building praying to God before dinner. He's waiting for dinner, so he goes up to pray. And as he's praying, he has this vision. And in the vision, there's this big sheet, and on the sheet is a bunch of animals, all animals that the people of God, the people of Israel, had been told not to eat because of purity rituals and laws that God had given them many years ago. And so on this sheet are all these animals that are forbidden to be eaten. It comes down out of the sky in the vision, and there's a voice that says, Peter, get up and eat. And Peter says, surely not, God. I will not eat anything that is unclean. I have never done that. And then the voice says to him, do not say that something is unclean if God has made it clean. And then it happens again. And then that same vision happens again three times. Whenever something happens three times in the Bible, really pay attention because that's a significant thing that people who would read this early manuscript would understand. This is a big deal. So Peter is super confused. He is just thinking, what was that? That is so bizarre. And as he's trying to figure out what's going on in his brain, he's like waiting for dinner. He's probably thinking, is my blood sugar low? I don't know what's happening. Maybe he didn't know about blood sugar back then, but that's, you know. And all of a sudden, these men, some of his people come up and say, there's men here from Caesarea, and they're saying that there's this guy named Cornelius that is sent for you and wants you to come. And Peter gets up right away and says, well, we need to go. And he heads over to Caesarea, a two-day journey from Joppa to Caesarea. And he gets there, and he comes into the the court of this home. So you have to understand, so Cornelius is a person of power in this community in many ways, but he's also in a really interesting system where he has experienced oppression and people like him. But he is a wealthy guy, okay? So his household is probably really big. And so Peter comes into his home, and as he comes into his home— uh, he, Cornelius falls on his face before Peter, almost like he's going to worship him or something. And right away, Peter says, no, 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 get up. I am just a man. And the first thing that Peter does is he asks to listen to Cornelius. He wants to hear what Cornelius has to say. All right, so at this point, you've seen two of these practices so far, right? You see two families that are, peop- are people that pray, right? And Two men that are praying, and they're not only talking to God, but they're listening for what God might be saying, and God speaks to them. So you see that prayer happening there, and God leading that. And then you see Peter say, I want to listen to you. And he listens to what Cornelius has to say. Cornelius explains, well, this angel came and told me to go and get you. And then Cornelius wants to hear from Peter. He listens to Peter. Let me read you what Uh, Peter said specifically, because this is an important part that we've been reading each week, in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Peter says, I now see God's not showing favoritism based on ethnicity, but you all know about Jesus. You know this peace that comes from Jesus. The unity that's beginning there between these two groups of people is centered around something very important, and that is 
who Jesus is and what Jesus did and why that makes a difference in all these different ways, the gospel. The gospel, the good news about God's kingdom is what's bringing these two groups of people who are very, very different together. The good news just got even more good because now, even though there's going to be many challenges between these two groups of people that we read about later in the story as they try to figure out how to worship God together, now the good news is saying that there is no barrier between humanity and God for everybody, not just the people of Israel. And the good news is that what Jesus did on the cross, his death and resurrection, also removes barriers between groups of people. The good news has gotten even more good. And Peter isn't even finished talking, which is interesting. God actually interrupts Peter in a certain way. And this is what happens in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, or the people of Israel, the Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising, worshiping God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. And Peter did stay with them for a few days. So all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes upon this whole household of people. And Cornelius and all of the people there begin to worship and to praise God. So remember, this is not a small group of people. This is a household. Uh, in this time, a household would maybe be 50 people. This could have been 50-plus people in this room, all of a sudden breaking into worship and breaking into praise. This is a huge deal that this is happening. So there we see that practice of worship. And then Peter and his companions stay for a few days, and they eat together. And uh, chapter 11 affirms that they did eat and share meals together, which is a big deal based on the amount of things that Jewish people had been told not to eat. So we see all four of these practices, praying, eating together, worshiping, listening, happening here. Regarding this idea of worshiping together with people who are different than us, we could talk about that for a really long time. And I just had a few observations that come from this story that might help us as we think about this this reality of this practice of worshiping with people who are different than us. So let me just walk through just a few observations. The first one is, God is the one who leads us towards unity. That's really clear in this story, isn't it? God's the primary actor. God does something. And Peter and Cornelius and all the other people involved have a choice. Are they going to respond or not? But God's the one leading that. God's the one out ahead saying, come follow me. The Holy Spirit is with them and coming behind them. God is the one who is making this possible. Do you see how God is leading in this? Do you see how uh, they were seeking God and then they had to trust God? I mean, they really had to trust God in this story, didn't they? If we were in an African-American church, I would say, turn to your neighbor and say, we need to trust God. And then that's when you turn to your neighbor and you say that. We need to trust God. Wow, that was... Okay, one more. We need to trust God. All right, we'll work on that one. We'll work on that one. I really believe that this story shows us that God is the one who has to break down racial barriers. That God's spirit is the one that brings unity to people. We need God for this. And I'm not saying that there's not efforts that can be made in civic environments that we should participate with. Totally. But when it comes to radical reconciliation between groups of people, 
That's not possible without God, and it's certainly not possible without what Jesus did for all of us that removed those barriers between us and God and those barriers between each other. Second, it may be inconvenient and uncomfortable to worship with people different than us. Some of you are like, it may be? No, it always is. <laughs> it is. It is uncomfortable, and that's okay to say. We're all uncomfortable in settings where things are really different than what we're used to. That's just a fact. Very few people would not say that. So, look at the story and what happens. Peter and his friends go out on a limb to walk two days to get to the house of a guy where they don't even totally understand what happened. Talk about inconvenience. And then when they get there, they're walking into a space that they'd never been in. Jewish people were not supposed to go into the homes of Gentiles. And Peter walks right in and crosses that threshold, doesn't he? And his friends go with him. Realize that if you've never been in the home of somebody of a different culture, how strange it probably is to walk into that environment. They probably saw things in the room and food and smells and sights that were completely different that they'd never seen before. And some of us have had that experience. We've, they've stepped into things that were brand new for them. And then you notice how kind of uncomfortable it is and shocking when all of a sudden these folks who they're just meeting begin to break out into worship and, and praising God and praying in tongues. And it often feels like that to us, doesn't it? It feels inconvenient and it feels uncomfortable at times. It doesn't feel comfortable to sing songs you've never sang before, usually. It is often something that's kind of uncomfortable when people are singing in Spanish or Swahili. If you don't know how the language of Spanish or Swahili is not your language, right? It, you're trying to keep up. That can feel awkward sometimes and can feel uncomfortable. We should expect that. And what I want to say today is this story tells us, I think, that it's worth it. It's worth it to be able to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. This is the way that I put it. To become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Okay, third thing I think this story points out about worship. Go towards others in, instead of expecting others to come to you. This is really important. If we value the gift of diversity, then I would say, because I, I suggest that diversity is a gift. Racism is a curse. Diversity is a gift. If we value the gift of diversity, then it totally makes sense that we would want even this space in this room at this time to be more diverse. That totally makes sense. But this story reveals that even though some of us desire that, this story reveals that many, and something really interesting, and I'd say that many multi-ethnic writers who are writing about multi-ethnic church, they point this out. Do you see how the in-group, the people who already knew they were accepted by God, went to the people in Caesarea? They went to their home. They went to their space, to their turf. And that is where we see the first multi-ethnic worship happen for the first moment in history when they go to them. I've learned a lot from uh, this gal, Christina Cleveland, in our friendship, but also from reading her work and some of the stuff that she has online. And uh, she points out something really interesting in this book, Disunity in Christ. And I actually have this quote. We can put it up here on the screen. I just want to mention, show you what she says about this. She says, The ignorance of power and privilege differentials show up in questions like, Why don't more people of color come to our church? The entitled sentiment behind this question is antithetical to Christ's cross-cultural cross -cultural privilege abdicating example in the incarnation. So what she's saying in there is, Jesus let go of so much power to come be a human, didn't he? He's showing an example for us in that. 
And then she goes on to say, privileged people who truly understand their privilege will jump at the chance to give up their privilege by going to the other's church in their com cultural comfort zone, on their turf and on their terms. Quite simply, this is what unity in our upside-down kingdom often requires. So thus, the opportunity we have, we've been invited to come to worship with Baba's church next, Sunday, next Saturday night. We've been invited by the folks at Proverbs Christian Fellowship to come worship with them any time that we want, which is on Sunday afternoons, and a group of people are going to go on November 15th if you're interested in doing that. It's so interesting, as I read this story, it seems like God was so intentional to have Peter and his friends be the ones that went to Cornelius. Can you see the intentionality in that? Because I wonder, would there have been the same space created for those new believers to engage with the Holy Spirit if they were in an environment that they weren't comfortable in? Think about that for a minute. I don't know, but I wonder if the story would be different. Would the Holy Spirit have been something that they were open to and ready for because they were in their culturally safe environment in that moment? Are we willing to join others in worship instead of expecting them to come to us? Fourth thing, God breaks down walls of division and racism when people worship together. I know some of you have been in, in environments that are very diverse in worship, and I have too, and when I've been in those moments, it feels true to me, doesn't it, that that barriers are coming down when we're worshiping together. Some of you experience that, not if you have. You've experienced being in groups of people where I know I don't know everything about the people around me and I'm growing in relationship with them, but it's like you can feel the barriers that this enemy puts up between us coming down. God breaks down walls of division and racism when people worship together. As it was said last week, we equally all need Jesus to save us. And that puts us together, seeking after something together. All of our differences are welcome, but we're seeking after one God and one Savior in Jesus Christ. Okay, finally, reconciliation happens through intentional relationships. We have to continue to build relationships. Peter and his friends stayed there for a few days. I mean, worshiping together is not enough to build those really intentional relationships. In fact, worshiping together is usually a result of those relationships. Are you following me with, on, uh, with me on that? Relationships that are formed around praying together, eating together, serving together, often result in feeling like you trust each other enough to worship together. I mean, think about it. If you were inviting a friend who's very different than you to come worship with you at your church, they'd need to trust you a lot to be willing to do that with you. So this is an important thing that I want to suggest today. If a church or a worship service is going to become more multi-ethnic, it will start with building trusting relationships every other day of the week. If a church or a worship service is going to become more multi-ethnic, it will start with trusting relationships that are being built every other day of the week. It's intentional. It takes time. We can't give almost like a consumer-like mentality where we want to microwave reconciliation and cross-cultural relationships, and just have them microwaved, and then we have it right away. It's immediate. Christina also says this in her book. Unity is built on cross-cultural, interpersonal interactions. Once we get to know people on an interpersonal level, we cease to view them as solely as nondescript group members and begin to see them as individuals. In turn, this undermines many of the negative perceptions that we once held for that group, Personal interaction sets us free from our false perceptions of them, of the other. So personal interactions, eating together, 
praying together, serving together, listening to each other, worshiping together. I'm going to have the band come back up, and as we're finishing this conversation that we've been having for this whole last month, I want to stress something that I think is really important for us as a church. This can't be a conversation that we had for a month that doesn't continue. Do you get where I'm going with this? This can't be like, remember that time in October 2015 when we talked about race and it was a little tense? Right? Like, it's got to be something that is a conversation that continues. So we're going to have a way for us to engage in one of these four practices every month for the next few months just as a way for us to participate. So you're invited to, to go worship on Saturday in November 15th at Proverbs Christian Fellowship. And I know that you guys know this. I know that you know this, but it's a helpful reminder. I know it is for me. This is not a thing that our church leadership can do for everybody else, right? It has to become personal for each of us. It has to become personal for your missional communities and your discipleship groups. It has to become personal for your families, for you as an individual. We have to confront our prejudices and our fears. We have to be willing to go outside our comfort zones. Like I said a couple weeks ago, here's your comfort zone. Just start to do this just a little bit. We have to be willing to do that. You don't have to jump into the deep end of the pool. Just start taking steps. But please keep taking steps. This is not a conversation that should ever stop. It has to be about the places where we are being the church, every other space, including this one. Not just hoping that this time frame grows in diversity. So I know you're following me on that. And I know we can do it. And I'm so proud of us. And I can't wait to see what God continues to do. Because I would suggest that this is the future of Mill City Church. And I don't just mean like the future of how long this particular church is here in Northeast Minneapolis. I mean, this is the future of the church. If you've read how the story ends, because we know that brokenness and, and racism is not the end of the story. If you've read how the story ends, it is in a new heaven and a new earth. This place is completely new, a new city, a new river flowing through the city and a new tree of life, something amazing and an amazing city that Jesus brings when he returns. And in that place, we see this work of reconciliation happening because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that Jesus brings to completion at that point in the story. And so I want to just close today by reading this picture that Jesus gives to his disciple John in Revelation 7, 19 through 17. And this is what we hear Jesus say about our future reality, about the future of the church, including the future of Mill City Church. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they crowd, cried out in a loud voice together, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now picture this, all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God together saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. And then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God 
and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And never again will they hunger. And never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is at the center of the throne and will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. That's our future. That's our future hope. Let's stand and sing and praise God for that reality.